You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, Merry Christmas. Amen. Good to see you today. I'm impressed that you're here. Uh, we had close to uh, somewhere between four and 500 people in both of our uh, Christmas Eve services last night. Uh, even had uh, some folks joining us internationally, our missions partners, uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, they had some uh, sick family members and so uh, informed us early this morning that uh, they were able to stay home. And uh, our Christmas Eve service became their Christmas morning service. And so how about that? Um, and, uh, but uh, so glad that you were here. Let me just go ahead and tell you, I, I don't normally eat much of a breakfast on Sunday mornings. But this morning was different. Like, we, we do a big Christmas breakfast, so we had, like, bacon and eggs and fruit and sourdough toast and cinnamon rolls and all that. So if I doze off during the sermon this morning, you'll understand why. Um, I don't normally preach on such a full stomach, but uh, how many of you uh, have decided to wait to do your Christmas stuff till after service today? Okay, that's a few of us. Some of you, nobody with kids though, right? Okay. Because I don't want them to have to endure this hour and a half sermon today. Uh, wait, I'm totally kidding. We're not going to be here an hour and a half. Uh, I, I would love for you to think that I am a sermon planning genius. Um, because we are, we're, we're continuing our study of John. And uh, as God would have it in his sovereignty. Uh, and I do uh, certainly pray and ask God to guide me as I kind of plan a sermon series and all that. Uh, I really didn't like nail this. Uh, myself. <laughs> this is really uh, kind of God's sovereign plan that we would be in verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. Some of you who've been here a little while uh, might remember, and especially if you take notes faithfully, uh, as you turn to John 1 14, uh, you may have uh, noted there uh, that I preached from this passage in 2017. You might remember I preached a, a Christmas series that year called Vintage Christmas, uh, and we walked through uh, John's prologue here in John chapter 1. This is not the same message. Uh, in fact, it was only after I had this message prepared that I thought, you know, it probably would have been a good idea to go back and revisit that message. Um, but at any rate, I love Christmas. I, I love Christmas. I love the, the movies, most of them, uh, and the music. I love Christmas food probably more than I should. I love uh, the presents. I love the stories that we tell at Christmas time. I, I love it. I love Christmas. But this morning, just real quickly, the narratives of Jesus' birth are not simply part of our Christmas pageantry. The record of Christ's first coming does not get its significance from its place among our Christmas traditions. We must constantly fix our gaze upon Jesus Christ. Solid and hard and real and substantial and true and almost uh, unlike almost every other aspect of our Christmas celebrations, however valuable and uh, dear they may be, unlike all of them, Jesus Christ is real. Jesus Christ is real. I sat there this morning as Lexi was reading that story, and just my prayer in that moment was that each of those kids, that each of us, would understand the reality of what we celebrate on this day. So powerful. His coming is not simply a beautiful story. 
It is the pivot of history, and it is the the hinge upon which the destiny of every human soul turns. If Jesus is just one of the cast members among many Christmas characters in the romance of a Christmas story, then we have exchanged the indescribable gift of the incarnation for a cheap imitation toy. That much like many Christmas toys, is soon set aside when the latest new thing catches our attention. So we're in this sermon series called Person of Interest, a study of the Gospel of John. In week one, we learned from John's thesis statement there in chapter 20, verse 31, that he's written these things that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Again, John wrote his gospel to reveal to us, yes, the identity of Jesus. But he wrote it so that we might respond in belief. So this morning we're in the final verses of John's prologue, where again he gives us four reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is eternal, has no beginning and no ending. Remember, he starts this prologue with, in the beginning was the word. Jesus Christ is the creator. All things were made by him, it says in verse number three here of the prologue. And then Jesus Christ is the source of life. Nothing remains alive apart from him. And this morning, as we focus on the final verses of the prologue, verses 14 through 18, Jesus Christ, though completely human, fully reveals the Father. I like what one preacher said. He said, the pessimist claims that the glass is half empty. The optimist declares the glass is half full. The psalmist says, my cup overflows. In our text today, we find a fullness, a fullness of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. I love that terminology. What we see here really is a a cup brimming to the top and overflowing, so overflowing that we receive, according to John here, grace upon grace. Jesus Christ, we learn, is full of grace and truth, and through him, God is made known. Let's look at the text once again, verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then parenthetically, John, John bore witness about him and, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I really want to encourage your heart uh, this morning to, uh, to challenge you to sit for a moment and consider the glory of the coming of Jesus Christ this Christmas. As John brings his prologue to a climax, to a a crescendo even, he offers us three things that I believe will anchor our faith in something more than sentiment. He tells us about Jesus' identity, who he is, and then about Jesus' uniqueness, what makes him different from any other human, and then thirdly, about Jesus' mission, what he came to do. So let's, let's think for just a moment about the identity of Jesus, who 
he is. That's really uh, what we've been looking at so far through our study of the Gospel of John. We've been asking and answering that question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Jesus himself posed that question. Who do you say that I am? There's not a more important question for us to ask and answer than that question. Who is Jesus? If you look at verses 14 and then in verse 18, bracketing our text this morning, you'll see that the Apostle John tells us about Jesus' identity in two distinct and yet complementary ways. In verse 14, he talks about Jesus' true humanity, while in verse 18, the accent falls on his perfect deity. So you have his true humanity and his perfect deity. Think about that phrase, the word became flesh. That's a staggering statement. We could stop right there and spend the rest of our time only beginning to comprehend the depths of those words. And the word became flesh. All things came into being by him. We've already learned that in verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 10, in verse 11, uh, verse 12 rather. John uses the same Greek verb to describe the coming into being of the world, of the coming of John the Baptist, of believers becoming children of God. The same verb is used each time. This time in verse 14, it is used of the word. God in the flesh. Now the word himself becomes that which he has never been before. The one by whom all creation comes into existence becomes flesh himself. And John's point isn't simply that the coming of Jesus meant that he took the appearance of humanity, as some would teach. Or that he, he uh, put on a disguise, you might say. No, he became flesh. He didn't simply put on a body like some sort of new set of clothes. Human nature was not a superficial addition to his essential self. No, when Jesus was born, the person who was and still is the eternal word, the only begotten son of the father, filling the universe, upholding it by the word of his power, this one was the same one who was held helpless, vulnerable, completely dependent, cradled in the arms of his virgin mother. John is telling us that in the womb of the Virgin Mary, divinity and humanity were, were, were irrevocably united. Not mixed together to become something new, neither God nor man, nor superficially linked, but irrevocably joined so that Jesus became man. And so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. I've always liked the way my old theology professor, Dr. Ray Fitchie, put it. Retrieved this from some of my notes many, many years ago. He read, said it this way. At the most basic level, the incarnation means that Christ took a true human body. The same in all essential respects as our own. It grew, he says. From zygote to fetus to infant child to adolescent to man. It had the same nutritional and environmental needs. It had the same chemistry, the same anatomy, the same physiology. It was not an illusion, but was real and tangible. The incarnation was not a theophany, a temporary assumption by God of human appearance. It was a genuine entering into the possibility of all those experiences to which our own bodies expose themselves. Hunger and thirst and weariness and pain and seeing and hearing and flogging and crucifixion and death and burial. The word became flesh. Jesus 
is now no longer behind the scenes, we might say. He is now the main player. He came into the world, not in some form that we could not see, but as a man just like us. And he dwelt among us. That term dwelt literally means that he tabernacled or tented among us. This might remind you of uh, how God tented or tabernacled with the people of the Old Testament. There can be no closer physical proximity and intimacy with, with people than to tent among them. Ever done that? Years ago, I had the opportunity to lead some, uh, some young men in these leadership expeditions that we did in the Allegheny National Forest. So we would go backpacking into the Allegheny National Forest. We'd be two or three days in, uh, off the grid. This was before cell phones and all that kind of thing. And I'm just going to tell you, when you tent among someone and you hike with them on the trail for six to eight hours a day, you learn a lot about them. There's a closeness there that, that you would not enjoy otherwise. Well, understand something here. Theologically, the term for this idea that Christ became flesh, took on flesh, it's what we call the incarnation. Now, that word is not in Scripture, but it's a great word used to describe what is happening here. The incarnation. He tabernacled among us. With the incarnation, we now better round out a doctrine of Christ, an understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, took on human nature, but He didn't cease to be God. Jesus Christ was both fully man, fully God, two natures in one person. And that's why John goes on to describe here, as we look at verse 18, that brackets our text this morning, Jesus' perfect deity. So verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is God in the flesh, the only begotten Son of the Father. We, we were, all of us, begotten, naturally, born by our parents. Begotten spiritually, if we are believers, if we are Christians, in the new birth, by the Word and by the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ is begotten eternally in the fellowship of the Trinity. He is the Son, John says, who has always lived at the Father's side, or better, in one older translation that says, at the bosom of the Father. That seems like a little bit like, kind of like archaic language to us, but literally it means heart to heart with the Father and with the Spirit in being and in essence and in nature, one. In love and in fellowship and in delight, one. And so in verses 14 and 18, speaking about the same person, truly man in the full array of personhood and humanity, yet fully almighty, omnipotent God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, Jesus Christ. John's point is that the man of Galilee is the Lord of glory. His point is that the virgin's child is the only begotten God. The crucified Jew is the sovereign Jehovah. The God that we worship is Jesus Christ. We do not merely admire him, a great man. We adore him as the God-man. Come in the flesh. His identity. Let's think secondly about the uniqueness of Jesus. What is it that makes Jesus 
even his physical birth, unique, different, his humanity different from every, every other human being that's been born. The importance for us in all of this is that in him, grace and truth are made known to us. Grace and truth are two things that are closely connected with salvation. The Bible teaches that grace saves and truth frees. So in Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel is made clearly known. Though shadows of it were visible in the Old Testament, we now know this truth more fully. And the truth that we know is that salvation is by grace alone. Truth and grace. Grace is well defined as just basically God's unmerited favor. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can purchase. It is God's unmerited favor. And so God, for his own purposes, not for any merit on our part, has shown us favor through Jesus Christ. And this grace is greater than all our sin. God loved us even though we were sinners. What do you think about this? In most of the issues of life, this is something that I'm coming to understand more and more as I... As I, uh, as I mature, I guess, uh, is that in most of the issues of life, we lack the proper balance. You could take any of the hot-button issues of our day, and what you'll find is there are always extremes. You take the subject of racism, for example. You've got extremes. You've got those who would say everything is racism. On the other extreme, you've got those who would say there's no such thing as racism. It doesn't exist. It's like we've, we've lost this ability to understand nuance and, and balance and all those things. And this is one of those areas, this whole thing of, of grace and truth. Because if we are all grace and no truth, that leads to a permissive relativity. Hyper-grace, we would sometimes call it. It's that whole uh, modern-day ideology of you do you, boo-boo. You know? That's hyper-grace. That, that, that's, that's, that's out of balance. That's out of line. If we're all truth and no grace, then that leads many times to a harsh legalism. Jesus perfectly personifies the delicate balance of grace and truth. And like the psalmist whose cup overflows, we have all received, as the text says here, grace upon grace. I love that. We read that in verse 16. For from his fullness... This grace and truth, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Some commentators explain that uh, to mean that we receive a grace ever new and greater. I think that's true. Uh, we're constantly receiving God's grace. Uh, one of the things that I, I marvel the most, marvel at the most as far as the characteristics and the nature of God is that God is just a long-suffering. God is so patient with me. There have been so many times, you know, you get frustrated as a parent when your kids are younger especially, and it just seems like they will never learn. And then many times I sit there and look in the mirror and I think, God must feel the same way about me. When will you ever learn, Mike? When will you ever learn? So we do receive this grace upon grace, ever new, ever greater. That's true. But I think for a fuller understanding of verse 16, it's important that we read it in the context of verse 17. Verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now grammatically, you studied the language here. This is a strong for 
or because, you might say. It connects the two verses, actually. From his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. For or because the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So in context, we see that the law of Moses was itself a type of grace. Though not a saving grace, it was certainly a a blessing to man to have the law. Scripture tells us that the law serves as like a schoolmaster to bring us to grace. So there's great benefit in that sense. But now there is a new grace. And instead of grace, the law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is a saving grace. It's a new and overflowing grace. How do we know God's grace and truth? Through Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that God's grace and truth are made known. It's through Jesus Christ that God himself is made known. What Moses taught, Jesus embodied. The point is, Jesus is the central figure, not just of world history, but of biblical history. So that not only must you know him, if you were to to know him, to make sense of him, of your world, you've got to know him. You must also understand his centrality to the scriptures. If you're to make sense of your Bible. Again, it's part of the reason that we say we strive to be a church that's biblically based, Christ-centered. Those two are intertwined. Those are not two separate concepts. It's because we know and understand the meta-narrative of Scripture. We see Jesus Christ from, from beginning to end. The Alpha and Omega. And we see this ribbon of redemption that weaves its way throughout Scripture. From Genesis through to Revelation. And Jesus Christ is the central figure of Scripture. Even before His incarnation. Long before His incarnation. So the coming of Jesus Christ is the key that will open the scriptures to you and show how it fits together. The old pointing to him, the new explaining uh, his coming. Mark Dever has two uh, commentary volumes on scripture and the one on the Old Testament he calls it promises made. The one on the New Testament he calls it promises kept. That's why we often say what we see foreshadowed in the Old Testament comes to life in the New Testament. What seems to be many times concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Let's finally consider the mission of Jesus. What he came to do. One of the things that I pointed out last night um, in our Christmas Eve service was that in the angelic visit, it was made clear to both Mary and Joseph, not only what the child was to be named, but what he would do, what he would accomplish. Again, can you imagine if that's how it worked for us today? It was like some kind of angelic visit. We're given the name of the child, and we're told, and uh, you will be an all-pro quarterback, uh, and she will be a, you know, a biochemist. And you know, It's amazing. And so think about what, what it was that he came to do. First of all, we learned that though he can't, we, we can't get to God in Christ, God has come to us all the way down to us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to dwell among us. Again, that word is tabernacle among us. And again, pitched his tent among us. Or I think it's as, as Max Lucado says, he moved into the neighborhood. 
It's the word used of the tent of meeting and later the temple where God met with Israel. And John is saying to us that there is still a tent of meeting whose doors are open to all who would know God. It is now Jesus Christ. I love the way that Tim Mackey and the folks at the Bible Project explain this whole concept of heaven and earth coming together and how they overlap in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and in the temple. There's this point where through the, the, the animal sacrifices of that time and so forth, this, the atonement was made so that, so that there could be this overlapping what is it that Jesus Christ has come to do? He's come to completely bring those things together. And as, as his light is shared with others and the gospel is shared with others, again, that's why scripture says his kingdom has come. See what he's done? Here's the one place where God has come down, available, accessible in him to you and to me. You, you can't get to him. No logic of yours, no labor of yours will bring you to God. The good news is that God has come to you in Jesus, and there you can know him. So what John is telling us here is that we are seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the last thing we see again in verse number 18. One more time. We're told that, that we cannot see God in Christ. God makes himself known. Look at verse 18 again. No one has ever seen God, but the only God. You ever hear the story about the little girl who's just drawn a picture one day, and her mom walks up to her and says, baby, what are you doing? She's like, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And her mom immediately corrects her, like, baby, we, we, we can't know. We don't know what God looks like. And the little girl said, well, people will know after I get done. <laughs> can't do that. But again, here what we see, why we can't draw him we can't see him. Uh, God, God doesn't look like anything. No one has ever seen God. But we can know him because God, the only begotten, uh, Jesus Christ has made him known. The word John uses is the word from which we get our word exegesis. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He is the explanation of the heart of God. In Jesus Christ, the heart and the character of God beating with love for you and for me has been made known. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? You want to know what God is like? You want to know God? You may meet him for yourself in Jesus Christ. Trace the contours of his character. You can see them all in his son. Learn to discern the shape of the heart of the Father for you in the rabbi of Galilee, in the wretch of Golgotha, in the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. Behold your God with nail marks in his hands and feet, the word made flesh. And on this Christmas day, as you take in the wonder of it, won't you worship him? Enjoy one another's company, eat great food, do all the things that we so enjoy. But will you also worship him, will you this morning turn from your bankrupt self to your only Savior? And won't you come and join the angels, the chorus of those around the world who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ in adoration and in praise of the King who's come? Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you.
Thank you for this day. And while we wouldn't argue today that Jesus was actually born on this day, we would make no claim that we have all that figured out. I do thank you that even culturally we set aside a time, a day, to pause, to contemplate, to meditate. Upon that staggering statement that John writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the word became flesh. And he dwelled among us. So Lord, I thank you and your redemptive plan. You have made it possible for us to be reconciled as sinful human beings to holy God. Through Jesus Christ. And we thank you and we praise you for the indescribable gift of Christmas. God come in the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.